Good evening. You keep coming back. That's awesome. Well, hope your day was good. Mine was awesome. I don't work. <laughs> I work. Just a different kind of work. Uh, I want to talk to you about something in particular tonight. I was telling Pastor a little bit about it before service. Um, I have a really unique upbringing in that I totally rebelled against the religious system in which I was seemingly surrounded when I was a teenager. I was somewhat familiar with Christianity, but I th- looking back, honestly, I think I was more familiar with religion than I was anything else. Um, joined the Marine Corps, wanted as far away from the Midwest as possible, moved to California, and... Uh, I was kicked out of the Marine Corps in 1995 for drug use. I wasn't an evil person. I just liked to get high. <laughs> Seriously, I've heard people, I heard religious people say, oh, drugs are terrible. I'm like, well, you say that because you've never done drugs. You know, they're awesome. That's why people get addicted to them. But they destroy your life, honestly. And I was a mess. I'm 6'4", about 235, holding. And uh, when I was kicked out, I was 6'4", a little over 100, and, about 128 pounds, I think was my checkout weight. Um, Christian couple took me in off the street, who I'd known from Indiana, run into them. And uh, they, were, they were the first time, I think, in my life I'd ever been around an authentic Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday Christian. And they were legit and completely weird. I mean, really, they wear shorts, t-shirts, and flip-flops to church, which back in the early 90s, you didn't do that, you know? Obviously, if you're gonna go to church, you gotta wear clothing that you never wear any other time, and it has to be uncomfortable. Uh, You sing songs that you don't like, uh, you know? That's what church is. But they ended up taking me to a Billy Graham crusade and I had an encounter with another person. And it was life altering. It wasn't a religious experience, it was an encounter that I had. So I come back to Indiana, uh, leave California, move back to Indiana and begin to go to church. Uh, Harris Chapel Church of the Nazarene, kind of my prior roots were, kind of ran across that path. And I got confused very quickly because I'm this brand new Christian and in a relationship, a personal daily walk with God, getting to know him. And I'm just eating up everything I can find about what it means to be a Christian. But it's confusing because one group of people say, say this, another group of people say this, and another group of people say this. And I got this really bad taste in my mouth for church people. Honestly, from the very beginning, because I was finding after a few years, a lot of the things that people told me that had to do with Christianity had nothing to do with Christianity. And I think I mentioned this already this week, but I was told, you know, when you became a Christian, you, as a guy, you couldn't have long hair and I couldn't have earrings and no tattoos, all that kind of stuff. And then when I begin to find that 
clothing and that kind of stuff, aside from modesty, has very little to do with Christianity, but it comes out of our culture in the 1850s. I began to discredit a lot. I, I, I became cynical, honestly, with the church. Became cynical. And of course, I was in the Marine Corps, so I got tattoos all over me. And I remember someone saying, well, hey, Christians don't get tattoos. And then they gave me the Bible verse, which is in the Old Testament. And it's two verses right before that one verse that says you can't eat pork. But apparently you can do that. And the measure of inconsistency was just, it was just appalling to me. And honestly, it made me question everything. Because people would tell me something and I'm like, but how do you know? Well, I just know. Yeah, well, you just know I couldn't have long hair as a guy. Jesus could, but I can't. And so I just, I, 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 it came to this point where I was so cynical. And then I began to ask questions about, well, then really, what does it mean to be a Christian? Really, what does that mean? And someone would say, well, you got to read the word. Well, what is this thing? What is the Bible? It's the word of God. Yeah, 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 I heard that. How do you know? Oh, I just know. Yeah, ain't buying it. And so there's a lot of those kinds of issues that I've worked through. But one of the things that I'm consistently running into is there is in the culture in which we live, a variety of definitions of Christianity, honestly. And depending on which version you want, you can just shop around for the right church and find it. And I think that's extremely dangerous. And so I wanna just, I wanna talk to you tonight about the scriptures, why, why the early church called it the rule uh, the authority, they called it the canon, the, the canon, which means standard. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, this book. But where did it come up? Where did it come from? You know, why is it so special? Why is it different than other books that we have in our New Testament? And I want to talk to you about this, but I want to begin with kind of a preface by saying, and I, can, I believe I can prove this to you biblically, and I'm going to do it here in a minute, but or at least I'm going to, and you, hey, you can believe whatever you want to believe. Honestly, there's no pressure. But if you want to know what the early church believed, what came out of the mouth of Jesus, in whom if you're a Christian, you have a personal relationship with, and you recognize his voice, they came back to the scriptures. This was the word. But so I make this statement that, and I can prove it to you biblically, that if you are not regularly in the word, you're going to end up serving a Jesus that's not the real Jesus. It, it, really, you're going to have a Christianity that's not biblical. Because there are versions of Christianity out there where I hear people talk about their relationship with God. And then they say, are you a Christian? And I say, no. They're like, well, I thought you was a preacher. I am. But if you're a Christian, I'm not. I'm a Jesus lover. I'm something, I'm a, I want to be a biblical son of God, child of God. So I propose to you that if you are not regularly into the word, making it a priority, learning about who you are and who he is, I'm telling you, you're going to veer. I'll give you a quick example of this. A couple years ago, well, several years ago now, I think, we were, um, my wife and I put the kids to bed. This is back 
before they started running our lives. And they were a little younger. And we were watching one of the news. My wife's big news person comes from a family in politics and, and all of that. And so when we spend time together, I do whatever she wants to do. And so we watch news together. It's, it's a blast. And I don't really care for the news, but there's one guy, and I don't even think he has this program anymore. And I don't remember what, what I don't remember what. She watches, she, she's not here and she won't listen to this, so I can say whatever I want. But she'll like watch all the news stations and knows if they're left or right and, and who's good and who's not. And she's just, it's a science, you know. So I, I just rely, rely on her for all that. But there was this one program, and it was this guy, and uh, he would go into these, and my favorites where he would go into college areas and he would like interview in like hostile environment apparently for him and he would, he would like say this is my world and then he would interview these people and, and ask them these really in, in aggressive questions or whatever you know what I'm talking about this is my I mean, he would say this is my world or whatever that's him he's a crackhead man I loved him and we were watching one night and I was a little startled that it was on television. Of course, they blurred everything out. But he was in, he was in New York City, and he's interviewing these girls uh, who didn't have any clothes on. And, uh, yeah, news. And um, they had painted on their shirts. And so he's interviewing, and my, I have the remote. My wife's like, you know, we're just standing there. I'm getting ready to turn it until he begins to ask questions. And then I paused, you know, I was like, hold on. Because he's asking questions I would have asked. He's asking questions like, you know, what do your parents think of you doing this? Because they're out there like taking pictures with people and in Times Square. And, and he's like, what do your parents think of this? And has anybody ever tried to grab you? Or, you know, do you have security? All these kind of questions. But then he comes down and he says, what religion are you? And all of them said no, except one girl. And she goes, I'm a Christian. But God doesn't judge me. And as I listened, and he was like, really? And then she explained it. But as I listened to her talk, not an evil person, but she has an entirely different perspective of what it means to be a daughter of God than I do. Completely. And I'm under the strong suspicion that she doesn't, she did not get that definition from the word. And you'd be shocked and sorry. I meet people all the time who don't, they don't come back and have a biblical, well, it's in there somewhere. You know, they say that kind of stuff. So I want to talk to you tonight, first off, about the significance of the scriptures. And I'm just, as, as strongly as I, you need to know what you believe. And I tell teenagers this all the time, because um, I saw it in college. You can only live off of your parents' belief for so, for so long. You're going to have to know him. You're going to have to know him and know what you believe. And if you are not regularly in the word, I want to give you an example of this. If you're not regularly in the word, I'm telling you, you're going to end up believing in a Jesus that does not exist. Not the Jesus of the scriptures. So I want to deal with that first. And then as we deal with that, in fact, I want to give you an example of that because most people would say, well, that could never happen to me. Well, I'm going to show you where it happened with the disciples. And then after that, I want to talk to you a little bit about where the word comes from. And we'll do this quickly, theoretically. So if you have your Bibles, we're not going to deviate too far from John chapter 1. So you can open John chapter 1, scroll back a couple pages to Luke chapter 24, which is the last chapter of Luke 
And I wanna look with you at the Emmaus Road scene. And this is one of my favorite scenes in Jesus' ministry because he has died, he has you know, risen from the grave, and only a few, I got it, buddy, and only a few people. <laughs> I look up, and his face is like right there in the little crack thing, you know? It's like the E.T. scene where like E.T. is among all the little stuffed animals. I'm old. It's an old movie. Yeah, yeah, I see you. If it falls out, I'll get it for you again, but I'm not going to play fetch, just so you know. But Luke chapter 24, basically, the resurrection has taken place. You got a bunch of Marys that are hanging around the tomb. So they saw Jesus. You're under the impression. They run back, tell the 12, to, <coughs> tell the 12 disciples. <coughs> and uh, Jesus hasn't met with them yet. Because in this gospel, Luke's gospel, he does it at the end of Luke chapter 24. So this is an intermittent time. And we know from Paul that Jesus appeared to several people. In fact, uh, I think it... I think Luke says, or in Acts, he appeared to some 500 people. And so we know Jesus is going and, and, and speaking to people. Well, this scene here, he appears to two disciples who are on their way into the road, uh, to the road, um, on the road into Emmaus. So we call it the Emmaus Road scene. And I don't know if you've ever put this in context, so I want to walk you through a little bit of the grammar. Most people don't realize you're going to see this in a second, so I'll explain it just quickly at first. When Jesus died... It was more than just the savior of the world dying. It literally disqualified him from being the savior of the world. Because the Messiah from an Old Testament over and over and over and over and over perspective was the Messiah would never die. He would be unconquerable. He would be the king of kings, lord of lords, first and last, set up God's kingdom, going to be the man. So when he dies on the cross, they're like, oh, bummer. So they are devastated because, yes, that's right, that is awesome, that's right, did you hear him, devastated, that's right, that's right. I'm getting in their heads, and so they're absolutely devastated because, I mean, dude, he, he walked on water, he, he raised the dead, he healed the lame, blind, all these kinds of crazy things had happened. It was just incredible. And so for him not to be the Messiah was devastating. Listen to how this goes. You pick it up in verse 13, and they're on their way into Jerusalem, and it says in verse 14 that they're talking with each other, processing about everything that had happened. Well, in this verse 15, Jesus comes up alongside of them, and verse 16 says, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, you're going to miss this in your English translations, but the reason they were kept from recognizing him is because he was wearing that, those glasses with that nose and mustache. You, you'll get that in the original. Then you, so you come into verse 17, so they don't know it's Jesus, and he comes up casually, and you're under the impression he's a Jew, he fits in, he's not a Roman, he's not a Gentile, all these things kind of fall into place for us culturally. So he seems to be a Jew, he comes up, he says, what are you guys talking about? Obviously recognizing some of the terms, lingo, tradition, all that. And they stood there with their faces downcast. In fact, Cleopas looks at him and says, listen, where have you been? Come on, are you like just passing through? Are you from the diaspora? Are you like living over in Iraq? You care, are you living in Babylon? Have you come? And because people came from, you know, pilgrimages who had who had been exiled and, and set up synagogues in, in different, you know, areas of the world and come in. And that's what they think. Where have you been? And Jesus says in verse 19, you know, uh, what are you guys talking about? And they say about Jesus of Nazareth, verse 19. 
Notice their language. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Now look at verse 21. But we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. Now, hoped, is that in present, past, or future tense? Past. Meaning we don't hope that anymore. So they look at Jesus, not recognizing he's Jesus, and they say, we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was going to be the one to reconcile. We thought he was the one, but man, it killed him. And then they go on and explain some of the things that have happened. And you come down to verse 25. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, how foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, he looks at him and says, well, it's evident you didn't go to Sunday school. Because if you were in the word and you came back to the scriptures and allowed them to give you a biblical definition of the, of the Messiah, because honestly, similar to our culture, we end up designing, when you get away from the word, you end up designing a, a Jesus that best suits you. He's the big Santa Claus in the sky that loves me. He's going to take, take care of me, meet all my needs. He's awesome. That kind of... And they were looking for a political Messiah that were going to come and liberate them from the Romans. And Jesus constantly said, that's not me. In fact, love your enemies as yourself. And so it's interesting, this is so, so significant for me personally, every time Jesus is questioned about who he is, he consistently comes back to the scriptures. In fact, he not only does it in these verses, but you'll know he, he's kind of, he, he takes the glasses, throws them off, it runs away, and, and um, he ends up coming up and visiting the disciples in an upper room scene. And that's, you will pick some, we'll skip some of it. But if you go up to verse 44 in the same chapter, he's talking with the disciples. And notice what he says. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he said to them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you guys have seen this with your own eyes. So what Jesus says to them, listen, if you want to know who I am, you got to come back to the scriptures. So here's the platform that I want to begin with. Whatever you think of in terms of the scriptures, Jesus out of his own mouth consistently says, if you want to know who I am, you got to come back to this book. Which is why your great grandma put the weight in it that she did. It's why it survived. It's why it's the only book we call inspired. It's why the early church over 300 years called it the canon. So I want to walk you through some of this. If you were to take our Bible, and we're going to use just a little bit of the board, just for some, some basics here. But if you were to take our Bible, and you were to divide it up, obviously, 
you have a set of old covenant scriptures, which was for 4,000 years, literary about 1,900 years, but from Genesis to Malachi, Mark an interaction with God and his people under an old covenant relationship where God is out there and I'm here. God is holy and man is unholy. And they never mixed. It wasn't like God is holy, I'm holy, you're unholy, except for Fred, and he's awesome. Okay, so God is holy, man is unholy, never mixed. That's an old covenant system. We call those old covenant, that old covenant time period, those scriptures, the Old Testament. Then you come into, from Matthew to Revelation, new covenant scriptures. That's where the old covenant passes away and God establishes a new covenant relationship with those who are saved by Jesus. And we have a whole new category. We'll talk more about this Tuesday and Wednesday. A whole new category. This is not how we relate with God. God invites us into his holiness. And we walk with him as children of God. That is all laid out for us in New Covenant scriptures that we call the New Testament. Now, typically, when you ask people who are somewhat familiar with church and Christianity, you ask them, where's the gospel? They're going to say, the New Testament. In fact, we have four books specifically called the gospel. Gospel accounts. And I tell people when you say, you know, where's the gospel? And they say the New Testament. I'm like, you're 50% right. Because the New Testament is the gospel. But what sometimes we don't realize or fail to think of is that, yeah, although the New Testament is the gospel, the Old Testament is the gospel. In fact, scholars call the Old Testament the gospel announced, and they call the New Testament the gospel arrived. You say, what do you mean the gospel announced? And we, we get some of this. And, and it's probably, I know I did it as a teenager. Your teenagers are much smarter than I was. But you'll get people that talk about the Old Testament as old. Because there's weird things in the Old Testament. When we were in class, this is great. I would love to influence you on this. We would always have to submit our favorite Bible verse. I went to Olivet. And then they would put them in this big hat. And then they would get up every day and read them, you know. And I would put those like really weird Levitical, you know, don't break wind in the presence of the Lord, you know. That's an actual one. It's one of my life. I got a tattooed somewhere on one of my arms. But, you know, these kind of, you know, odd kind of ceremonial passages, they're great. Look for them. I mean, it's, they're hysterical. And your parents don't think it's funny, but it is really funny. It's really funny. And so we look at some of the Old Testament stuff and we say, you know, it's old, it's, it's, it's unrelating. It doesn't apply to us. And that's, that's making the wrong statements. It was under an old covenant time period, but we have to stay away from any language that would suggest that the old covenant was kind of plan A and new covenant was plan B. In other words, old covenant, I've heard people talk like this. Well, the old covenant was old and, you know, it was under the father and he's grumpy. He'll kill you, you know, and, uh, you know, you can kill your kids back then. And, uh, you know, and so it kind of went sideways and Jesus came and Jesus is cool. He's right on, you know, thank you, Lord. And, uh, you know, he's easygoing. And it's almost like there was a shifting of gears. There was no shifting of gears. For 4,000 years, God came to the people in an old covenant and said, I am going to redeem you. I'm going to restore you to the relationship that I had with Adam before he fell. 
there was, a, there was an idea, there was a dream that I had in the creation of humanity. And I want to restore you to that. And so for 4,000 years, he comes to man and says, I am this and you are that. And you don't look anything like me. And there's no way that you can be like me. You can't fix yourself. You can never be good enough. No matter how many good things you do, good deeds or works, you are never, you're going to need to be saved. And so for 4,000 years, he gave his law, which by the law was never given to, to redeem mankind. It was given to reveal sin. If you could be redeemed by the law, you don't need Jesus. You can just obey the law. So the law was given not to produce righteousness, but to reveal sin. And so during a whole covenant time period, it was people walking in relationship with a God whom they could never relate to, whom they could never, never walk with, never appease, never, never please kind of thing. So God had set up a whole entire, you know, sacrificial system so they wouldn't be killed and he could live with them and, and pull them away from their, their whole culture and, and, and gave them an identity. And for 4,000 years, that was to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. And Jesus was the first one, first human being on the face of the planet that demonstrated the kind of human being that God actually wants to be in a relationship with. Jesus is a normal child of God human being. The kind of person that God wants you and I to be. So for 4,000 years, Old Covenant, this is a lot of it. going to be a test. For 4,000 years, in an Old Covenant time period, it wasn't a shift. It wasn't God tried this and then tried that. God was leading them to this. And furthermore, this is the big part we want to talk about, everything God did in the Old Testament, he did to teach us about this. In fact, I'm going to propose to you, and you have to give me time to explain and not get mad and just run out because some of this is heavy. If you take Jesus, the ultimate message of Jesus out of the Old Testament, you're left with a mean, twisted Islamic God who's bored and in entertaining himself. I'll give you a perfect example of this. Um, if you take G, now of course we look back on it and it's obvious, but you look at the Passover. This is a great kid. You, you guys want to hear, the kids, you want to hear a great children's story? <laughs> this is my favorite, this is what I teach when they allow me. They haven't allowed me for years, but this is what I teach when I do children's camp. They're ignoring me, which is probably best. The Passover's a phenomenal story. And it's this, and this is so hysterical. Just like in our day and age, we have commentator, uh, we have commentary. Do you know what a commentary is? A commentary, a commentary is where scholars make comments on the scriptures, and they're so valuable that we take those comments and we put them in commentaries so we can reference them. Well, they had the same thing in the Old Testament with the Old Covenant rabbis. And if you go back and read some of their writings, and it's oh, really interesting, not... One of the things you're going to find is that they had more questions than they had explanations. They had more questions. In fact, there were things they did not understand about God. Here's a couple. God seemingly had them do things that were just weird. And those things, by the way, never made sense until you came here. The Passover, God comes to Moses, I'll give you Jeremiah's version, God comes to Moses and uh, he, uh, he, he, you know, he Facebooks him and, uh, and uh, might have been Instagram. And he says, hey, meet me at Starbucks, I want to talk to you about some things. And so they show up, they're meeting together and Moses says, wow, it's been a crazy week. God says, yeah, but it's almost over. 
We got one left, one, one plague left. And so Moses pulls out his iPad and his eye pencil and he's taking notes. And God says, here's how it's gonna go down. Um, this is gonna be the death of every male firstborn child in Egypt. But that's not for my people. And he says, here's how, here's how I want this to go down. And he said, on the 14th day, or no, rather on the 10th day of this next month, he says, I want every Israelite family to go out and get a, a one-year-old male lamb um, without spot or blemish, okay? I want a good one. Don't go down the alley and get some, you know, Big Lots lamb. I want a one-year-old prime, real deal, without spot or blemish, male lamb. And uh, bring it in your house on the 10th of the month, and I want you to keep it until the 14th day of the month, which 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, it's five days, it's a work week. He says, I want you to bring it in, I want you to keep it for a week. And in fact, the whole connotation, and, and, and old covenant scholars and new covenant scholars say, it literally became a part of their family. Very much like Jesus did. Jesus was in the home with us. He healed our kids. I mean, he wasn't just some foreigner. He was one of their own that they handed over. And that was to be exemplified in the idea of the lamb. And you and I could relate to that. You bring a pet into the house and the kids are fighting over it. And, you know, woo, yay, we got a new pet. And they named him, you know, Fred. And, uh, you know, Moses is writing all that down. He had to go buy PetSmart. He had to get the flea collar. Uh, he had to get the pee pad, the bowl, the dog, the lamb dish. He had to go get all those things. And he takes it home and they got the sweater and they teach it to fetch. And they're arguing over he gets to sleep with it. And Moses says, okay, I got all that. And God says, and kids, this is the best part. God says on the 14th day of the month, I want the whole family to gather in the living room and bring Fred and a bucket and a knife. And I don't want you to just kill Fred. I want you to slit his throat and let all the blood, it's a great children's story. It's phenomenal. It gets better. All the blood's going to pump out of Fred's, Fred's body into the bucket. Keep it. Because you're going to smear it all over the house. It's going to be awesome. Then after Fred dies, you're going to skin Fred because you're going to eat Fred. And God says, by the way, I know you're bratty kids. And they're going to cry and not want to do it. If they don't do it, they have no part in my inheritance. In fact, he dictates the entire meal. The bread, what to put in it, what not to put in it. The whole thing was stealth. I mean, he literally prepares the whole scenario. You walk out of that scene, as did Moses and as did the scholars. Fine, we'll do it. But why go through all that? Why didn't he just come, knock off the Egyptians, they get on down the road? And they, they struggled with that for 4,000 years until they come into a new covenant hour and they see the lamb. And they go, oh. So that wasn't just some Old Testament story. But it was an event that was to teach them about the coming of the Messiah. You need another one. Okay. Kids, you're really going to love this one. No, I'm just kidding. Lighten up. It's, it's Monday. This one's easier. One of my favorites, um, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. A lot of people focus on John 3, 16, uh, when in fact the whole first 21 verses of that chapter of chapter 3 are significant. But in a mini section, it's John 3, 15, 16, 17, and 18. That's one little concise little section. We 
tend to tend to highlight John three sixteen, but you can't understand verse three six uh, verse sixteen without verse fifteen through eighteen. And if you remember verse fifteen, and this is so hysterical, because it's the only place in the New Testament where this is expounded upon, and it's Jesus explaining to Nicodemus this old covenant event that was that was undefined. It was confusing for those in the old covenant. And it was the event where God, well, here's what happens. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in verse 15. And he says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man has to be lifted up that he'll draw all men to himself. And, and Nicodemus is like, yeah, that, that was always so weird. What was that about? And if you go back, it's out of Numbers. The people of Israel, in their hearts, have rebelled against God, opened up an attack of the enemy. It's not just physical. When you make a heart decision against God, you open the doors for the enemy to put you in bondage. Literally. Same new covenant, same old covenant. And so the enemy comes in the form of physical torment, as he does today. And literally, he came in the form of all these snakes. And they're biting all the people of Israel. And people are dying left and right. And so Moses, if you go back and read it in Numbers, Moses comes running to the tent of meeting. And he tells God, we got a snake problem. And God says, I know. It's because the people have sinned. And Moses says, we have to do something. God says, I've got it. And Moses is like, no, no, no long drug out. Just kill them. Just kill all the snakes. God says, no, no, that's going to be great. Here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to gather together the, some of the designers, some of the uh, woodworkers in Israel, and I want them to craft a snake that looks exactly like the one that's causing death in Israel. And I want them to craft it and paint it perfectly and bring it, bring it back to me. And so Moses does it, brings it back, and God says, great, take that snake, put it on a big tall pole, erect the pole, and stake it right in front of the tent of meeting. And then anytime someone's bitten, which is hysterical because he didn't take away the snakes, they were just hoping, Here. so often we just want God to just zap the problem away. We'll talk about that tomorrow. You'll love it, I hope. But God says, anytime someone's bitten, they can come and look at the snake and they won't die. And you're like, what, what does that even mean? Jesus explains this to Nicodemus. He says, what God did is he took the result, the product of their sin. The consequence of rebellion against God was that death. And so God took what was the consequence of their sin and put it up, and God says, I'm not going to let... I'm not going to let the product of your sin produce death in your life. Jesus said, God was talking to you about me. And just as the snake was lifted up, I'm going to be lifted up. And I'm not going to let your past, your emotions, the abuse you went through, I'm not going to let the former addictions personality traits, everything that's common to mankind that's no longer going to cause death in my people anymore. And it was an old covenant message that was to teach them about what was going to happen in Jesus. I'll take it that you're excited. So here's what basically we have. We have the old covenant scriptures, which were the gospel announced. 
that God was talking about. It was, yeah, it was an old covenant and God was bringing them in relationship, but the whole purpose of that time period was that they might be prepared for what God wanted to do here. Now, we're talking about the scriptures in general. There were things that happened in the old covenant, therefore, that are cleared up here. In fact, Peter says, we look back now and we understand what the prophets of old didn't understand. Because we have it all making sense. That this wasn't just all random. That God was literally, God has had a plan before the foundation of the world to redeem his people. I mean, you look at the first sin, God comes to Adam and Eve, and he looks at the snake and says, listen, what comes out of her body is going to crush your head. Who is he talking about? Jesus which was proclaimed here and made sense here. Now, there's some, there's some difficulty because there were things here that didn't make sense. This is so neat. Isn't this exciting? Okay, so in the Old Covenant, you have some significant passages. Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He tells, he tells Joshua, listen, you're going into Canaan, you're going to come to Jericho, you're going to come to all these different places, they're going to be serving multiple gods, do not listen to them. There's only one, one God. There's only one big dog. There's only one dog. I'm it. One God. But the problem with that is, yes, there is only one God, but all throughout the whole covenant, <laughs> I think this is hysterical, and the people of old... They, the old scholars debated over this because God was always saying that he's one, but all the words for God, especially in Genesis, were plural. In fact, if you look in Genesis 1 and 2, you see it even in our English translations. God says, let us make man in our own image. Us and our is plural. And so the people of Israel and the old covenant scholars struggle with this. And so that's why they came up with all these El Shaddai, you know, there's a bunch of them. He came up with all these different names for God and they kind of tried to fit that together. He's one person. He goes by different names. They're confused. Finally, Moses comes to a point. He says, listen, who are you? God's like, I have no idea. I am who I am. Because we have a one God that spoke in plurals. Well, that got all cleared up here. That got all cleared up here. Now, we got to hurry. That was an introduction. No, it's not. This will go quick. John chapter 1. When you, and this is great. When you come into the Gospels, are you able to track with me so far? Pretty simple, right? Old Covenant, Testament, Scriptures. Okay, Old Testament, Scriptures, New Testament. Old Testament isn't gone and over with. It was to prepare us for this time here. They were an entirely different relationship with God. We have a different relationship with God. But this is not old. In fact, when you come into the New Covenant and you look at the day of Pentecost, which is like when Peter got up and preached his sermon, that's like the most New Covenant passage in the whole New Testament. Peter preaches to them about a New Covenant God is going to make with them, and he preaches out of the book of Joel. And what's he saying? God's been talking about this day for 4,000 years. So God was preparing them for this day and age. So when you come into the, gospel, uh, into the New Testament, we have four Gospels. All the Gospels are is a way for writers to introduce to their generation who Jesus really was. People had gotten wind of the guy from Nazareth who supposedly came out of the grave, walked on water, 
I mean, and not just from Jews, from Romans, from Greeks. John chapter 19, at the end of Jesus' ministry, you got Greeks that are coming from Persia because they've heard about Jesus. And so everybody's like, where's the guy from Nazareth? So what the Gospels are, are saying, yes, the guy from Nazareth, Jesus, born as a carpenter's son, yes, he's a human being, but you need to understand he's more than a human being. He's God that came and dwelled in a human being's body. And all of them have a different way of doing it. This is how John does it. Listen to this. John says in verse 1, John 1, 1, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was with God in the beginning. And you're like, hold on, I thought, I thought they were talking about Jesus. They are. But Jesus has another name. And it was the name that He went by for 4,000 years. He's called the Word. And he tells us that he's not only a human being, but that he's God. In fact, you learn throughout the, gospel, uh, throughout the Gospels is that, yes, we do serve one God, but they're in three persons. In fact, those three persons are the Father and the Son and the... So it's not three gods. It's one Godhead made up of three persons. And as a bonus material, if you're interested in this, I would go to Revelation, not now, Revelation chapters 4 and 5. It's the best place in the entire Bible where each of these members of the Godhead are described in detail. God, so when we say God, we say this. Amy mentioned Yahweh. This is Yahweh. God wants to redeem human beings. And each member has a role in that. In fact, in in Revelation, you find that the Father, his role is kind of, he's the one that kind of oversees everything. He sits on the throne in heaven. The Son is the one who leapt off his throne and came down and became one of us and offered himself as a sacrifice. The Holy Spirit's the one that crawls down inside of us and opens our eyes and reveals the Father to us. So each each one of these have a role in our redemption. Three persons and they're one Godhead. They do not act independent. What, in fact, what we learn in the Gospels is we really only know the name of one of them. His name is Jesus. We don't know the name of these two. I personally believe it's Bill and Charlie, but I can't prove that to you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So we don't know the name of these two, but we only know the name of him, Jesus. So for 4,000 years, God, through the avenue of his word, well, let me give you two other things. They were very familiar. In verse 1, 2, and 3, it tells us who Jesus is. In the beginning was the word. He was with God and he was God. He was with God in the beginning. Then he starts talking about creation. Throughout an entire Old Testament period, the people of Israel were very familiar with God's word, that that term, the word. In fact, the people of Israel knew that the word was involved in creation. God spoke the world into existence. They knew this. And then God communicated with his creation through his word. Prophets would come up and say, I have a word of the Lord. 
This is important. We're almost there. So for 4,000 years in this time period, God created the world through the avenue of this person. And then for 4,000 years, God communicated with that world through this person. And after 4,000 years, this person looks to these two and says, I don't think they're getting it. I'm going in. And John says in verse 14 that the word became flesh. Which means that right here, this member of the Trinity left his place in the heavenlies and entered the womb of a woman named Mary. And nine months later, come flying out and said, let me show you what I've been telling you for 4,000 years. So after 4,000 years, God, through the avenue of his word, which we now realize was a person, had been communicating to them about who he is and what we're supposed to look like. And then at this point, that word came and was born a human being and says, I've been telling you forever who he is and what you're supposed to look like. Let me show you what that looks like. And Jesus lived that out. Which is why, if you ever go to college, you'll learn that they call Jesus the living word and you call, they call the scripture the written word. Because Jesus, and this sounds so weird, Jesus was speaking to them for 4,000 years before he came and they were writing it down in a little book we call the Bible. So when you get into the word, which is why we call it the word, you're literally... You're literally reading the words. By the way, the definition of inspiration means authored by God, written by man. Jeremiah the prophet, and you always listen to Jeremiah the prophet. When you get into the book of Jeremiah, you're not reading the opinions of Jeremiah, you're reading the opinions of God. In fact, every time in the New Testament when the Old Covenant is, scriptures are referenced, it's always God spoke through this guy to us. That one speaking to us was our God through this person who came and lived with us. You're all going, are you with me on this? That's what sets this book apart from any other book on the face of the planet. When I, was in, when I was a brand new Christian, a lady at our church came up and gave me a daily devotional. She said, read this every day. I'm like, okay. It was written by a man named Oswald Chambers. Can you guess the title? Someone say it. My utmost for his highest. And it was the old translation. And I remember being blown away. And we didn't have internet back then. I don't know how we survived. And so I had to do research. And I was, we went to the library, and then I got to Olivet. I was still reading. I was going to the library, reading everything I could find on Oswald Chambers, someone to explain it to me. And uh, one of my professors ended up telling me, you know, well, you can't go talk to him. And I was like, why? Is that a possibility? Like, he's dead. <laughs> Buried in Egypt. And I was like, oh, that's hopeless. I mean, you could, you could probably find somebody who was an expert on him, but the best resource would be him. So how are you really ever going to know what he meant by some of this stuff? We don't have that problem with the Bible because the author is alive. 
and lives in your body. Cannot tell you what that did for me. I graduated from high school, uh, 80, 80, uh, 87 out of 91 in my high school class. And the four guys below me were my best friends. We just made up the bottom of the roster, honestly, okay? I wasn't, I wasn't ignorant, I just, I was ignorant. I wasn't dumb, I didn't have the, I wasn't, I didn't have the abil- inability to learn. I just was drugged all the time. So when I get called to the ministry, Graduated high school with a D minus average. I got trouble. I had trouble getting into the military because of my, my scores were so low. I had to go an open contract. So when I got called to the ministry, I was scared to death. There's no way. So I get to college, and you know I'm just starting to read the Bible, and um, I, I get my list of classes for the first year, and Greek is on there. I'm like, yeah, I barely got out of English, you know, and I learned Greek. I'm serious. I'm scared to death. And one of my professors, <laughs> Dr. Thompson, phenomenal, he's, at, he's out in Oregon now, or out in uh, Northwest Nazarene University, Wyoming, that one. And um, <laughs> he comes up to me and he goes, I want you to look at the kinds of people that God calls. And I went through the Old Testament and I found murderers, I found Gideon's army, found 12 ignorant fishermen, Christianity is not dependent upon your intelligence. And I meet people all the time say, well, I just don't understand it. I get it. But you could ask him to explain it to you. It is the God-given right of every child of God to know him in his word. People ask me, hey, what commentaries do you use? I don't. Why do you know what that means? I know the author. We hang out, watch basketball. I'm tight with him. So the one who wrote this, let me go through this again really quickly. When you come into the scriptures, they're divided up into two parts, Old Covenant and New Covenant. Same God, same plan. And this God is made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For 4,000 years, the God created a world in the beginning, created everything through the avenue of this person. And then he communicated with his creation through the avenue of this person, which was called the word. The word of the Lord came. And then this lo and behold, this thing happened right here. That a person came out of the womb and said, I'm the word. I've been talking to you for 4,000 years. Yeah, your granddad wrote it down. Go read it. And then he went to the synagogues and he taught on the scriptures like he wrote them. And there's all these statements. One of my favorite statements is, in, and we could go all night, which we won't because the Portland and Warriors are going to play in a little bit. But one of my favorite passages in John chapter 10, and Jesus, uh, it's in eight, 8 through 10, somewhere in there, Jesus is in this like crazy conversation with the leaders of Israel. And they're, they're calling him an illegitimate son because they've heard about Joseph and Mary and all of this stuff. And sure, we don't even know who your dad is. And, and then they say, our father's Abraham. And Jesus goes, yeah, Abraham, great guy, loves to fish, need a layer. They're like, how do you know Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was born, I am. You're supposed to be impressed. Basically what he was saying is I knew the guy. I talked with him. 
And so the person that came and lived among us was the avenue of God speaking to us in the old. So when we look at the scriptures, they are the written record of Jesus speaking to us before he was born. That's nuts, ain't it? You're just speechless. <laughs> so that's what the scriptures are. And if you want to know him, you got to be in his word. That's why I'm telling you, he'll reveal it to you. It'll change the way you do, you do devotions. You get up in the morning and say, reveal this to me. And he's smart enough for both of you. Seriously. And that's the scriptures. That's why your grandma would not let you put a glass of water on it. Because this is the word of God. He's the word of God, but this is the written word. And it finds its meaning and enlightenment when it comes from him. Revealed to you. <laughs> You're so stoic. Are we in Ohio? We're in Ohio. We're in Ohio. That's what it is. Well, praise the Lord. You have any questions on this or anything you want? Any feedback? We got a couple minutes. I need to clarify anything. Any pushback? No? Oh, dear. Yes, sir. Huh? Fred? Oh, your mommy will explain it all again when she gets home as a bedtime story. In fact, you can get those pictures, those picture Bibles with illustrations. They're awesome. The boys are the ones who like that story. The girls cry. So it's just how it is. That's hysterical. Sorry, mom. All right. Well, tomorrow we're going to gather and again, getting you in and out of here and getting you home. I know you have kids and jobs and those kind of things. Um, tomorrow is really important. And I'm just going to be honest with you, like bluntly honest with you. Um, Christianity is not about you in terms of church is never about you. Church is about them in your community. And one of the things that I'm finding so consistent, and we have all the, the cool verses, you know, unless you're willing to take up your cross and die to yourself, Jesus says, don't even just keep on going. Go find Hinduism. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, it's about him and his kingdom. And sooner or later, you're going to pray for something that he's not going to give you. Seriously, sooner or later, he's going to let a spouse die. He's going to let a child die. He's not going to give you that dream job. He's not going to come and put a band-aid on the problem. Because he's got a plan. And you were created to fit into his plan to redeem a world. And one of the things we're finding is church is becoming so commercialized. And people come and say, so what do you offer me? A cross? Not a great selling point. And there's this idea of church that's, that's New Testament that I believe we're being brought back to in these days where the church is not here to serve you. You and I come together to pour our life out and reach a, reach a lost and dying world. Which means you don't come here because it's best for you. You're going to come to me and say, well, I don't like the worship. Well, we don't care. Honestly. I told you, I, heavy metal. I live in, I live in, you know, inbred Tennessee area. 
where they all listen to country music and southern gospel. It's terrible. But that's what we sing on Sunday morning. Because them hicks just absolutely love it down there. And I'm willing to bend my life. I mean, and I talk to senior adults. What would you give? What would you give up that surrounds you in church? What would you give up to reach, that gener- to reach your grandkids? We cannot compromise the message. But anything else I'm going to bend on. And so I want to look with you tomorrow at, uh, at uh, well, we're just going to go and look at tomorrow about that. So <laughs> come, please come. Don't be like, well, I'm skipping tomorrow. <laughs> Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. And uh, it's been great to be here and see faces that uh, I remember from last time and people that I've run into over the years. And we just love you, Jesus. You're, it's just such, a, it's such an eye-opening and... It just resonates with our spirit, Lord, when we hear the truth and things come together and we understand your word and who we are, our position as children of God, being involved on the front lines of ministry in a lost and dying world. Bring revival to our hearts and we'll give you the praise. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. See you tomorrow night, seven o'clock.